Good morning. This is Pastor Todd. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Gathering Place podcast. This week, I am sharing a message for the church. I trust the Lord uses it to encourage and build you up. And here is this week's message. Todd, I thank you, Lord, that that he loves Jesus. Father God, I thank you that his name is lifted up here to a very high place, the name of Jesus. Father, I thank you for the giftings he's given you. I thank you, Lord, that God is uh, going to work through him with the men's retreat in the, in the area of, of uh, just guiding us through a prophetic voice. And Father God, I thank you for that he's prepared to give your word to us, Father God, that your word is really the truth of all truths and that we will receive it into our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So, uh, before I get started, um, most of you probably already know this, um, but I don't know who does because it's not been official, but uh, Shannon and I are expecting our fourth baby oh. in May, so uh, it'll be a baby boy, so uh, keep training for us, uh, one for our sanity because four in the house, and, uh, but two for a happy, healthy baby and, and a happy, healthy delivery. So she'll be seeing the midwife uh, next week. Uh, it was supposed to be this week, but the schedules got mixed up. So she showed up to the appointment, and they were heading out to deliver a baby. So, so just ships crossing in the night. So she'll do a follow-up uh, next Friday just to get a, a formal assessment of everything. Things are going well so far, so praise the Lord for that. Amen. Amen. Uh, so, yeah, I wanted to give everybody else their time to do announcements, and so I didn't want to take up the announcement time. So I'm preaching. I'm already up here. Might as well just give it, right? So, yeah, so we're expecting uh, in May. So uh, be praying for us. Um, and then uh, with that, we'll move into our uh, message on James. We're doing James chapter 3 as we're going through the series. Byron did uh, two uh, last week, and then I did one uh, the previous week. And then we'll take a break for next week, so you guys will have a lady guest speaker while all of us uh, men are out to the retreat. And then we'll pick up on James when we come back. So James chapter 3, um, if you just read chapter 3, it's you really come away with two main points um, out of the chapter. Um, they're interlaced, so they, they, they do have some overlap. Um, but James kind of gives you two main points, and he kind of breaks down why uh, they're important. And the first point is the nature of the tongue. Um, this is a whole tongue chapter, like, careful what you speak kind of thing. Second one is uh, talking about the origins of the wisdom that we operate out of. Um, so people adopt wisdom, whether it's from one source or another, and they kind of guide their life around that, and they make their decisions on that. So James is going to kind of break down that as well. But we're going to see that the power of the tongue is great for good or for bad, and the nature of wisdom will affect the heart, which then in turn affects the tongue. So we're going to look at James's breakdown of these two points that are interrelated. Before we do that, we're going to go through the scripture, because I'm a big fan of that. So you can read along with me if you like. Um, mine's going to read a little bit different, because I'm doing the ESV, I think. And I think Twilight might be doing the, the NIV. So, Well, you've already got this up, so uh, we'll just go ahead. <clears throat> Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says... He is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses 
so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. And look at ships also. Though they are so large, they are driven and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder whenever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts big things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. Or wheel of birth, and set on fire by hell, or Gehenna. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and is sown in peace by those who make peace. So that's our, that's our scripture that we're working out of. So the first thing we're going to bring up is the role of teachers in its relationship to the tongue. Now this is going to cover verses 1 through 12. So James says, not many of us should be teachers. <clears throat> um, why? Because teachers impact and influence others. So due to the, the influence of a teacher and their use of the tongue, if a teacher ends up adopting or holding on to a wrong belief, they begin teaching that, and then they begin to negatively affect others. And so that's why he, he says, like, don't let there be a lot of teachers, because basically the more teachers you have, the more chance for errant teaching to go out. <clears throat> and uh, so... As a result of that, the teachers will incur a stricter judgment. They're held to a different standard in terms of like their influence because of the potential for widespread dangers that can uh, befall believers who follow their teachings. Now, there's plenty of false teachers out there. And there's plenty of teachers that are, are good teachers, and they have some false beliefs. And uh, the biggest challenge, you know, God's gifted me as a teacher... I used to joke uh, when I first started uh, getting into this, like, figures I'd be put in the position that gets the harder judgment, you know. But part of the thing with this is that, like, we're human, and we get error. Like, like sometimes we misunderstand things. Even, even in Scripture, we can misunderstand it. And that's a challenge, because when we read it, we might misunderstand something. That'll be harder Right, because we'll, we'll come to this understanding, it could be wrong, but we think it's right, and then we teach that. Right? So there, there, there really is this responsibility on the teacher's behalf to commune with the Holy Spirit more, 
to get a sense of what, what's right and what's wrong. Even that's not 100%, because sometimes what we think is the voice of the Holy Spirit might even just be the voice of our own reasoning. and That, that happens. Uh, so there's that. There's relying on the, the, the counsel of the wise, right? So other wise believers. So to speak things about, to see if, if they are in agreement with it. So we have a leadership board, you know? Sometimes I bring things up, I'm like, hey, what's going on with this? So there's a whole dynamic with that because of the danger that a false teaching can have on somebody. Um, and so that's something I've, I've always taken very seriously and have, have done my best to walk humbly in that process, to know, like, I could be wrong. You know, like, did I go get a what I consider a quality education out of Trinity uh, to learn how to do the Greek and the Hebrew and put things in context? Yes. And I could still be wrong. Because it's not, it's not a, a, a foolproof thing. So there's, there's a humility that I could be wrong, that like I would not be above correction. And that's how teachers need to be. If you get a teacher that's not teachable, beware. <laughs> teachers that aren't teachable have a much greater uh, a, like a propensity to fall into false teaching because when you're not teachable, you start hanging on to doctrines that you've established and your doctrine, I just told this uh, to a friend in an interview the other day, you hold on to your doctrine more than you hold on to your relationship with God. And so now you're forcing God to fit into a box of your doctrine and all your reasoning is tainted through that. Now that's not to say that doctrine is bad or, or some dogma, if you want to say, is bad. It's just that it needs to be remind, like, like seen in the context of a thriving relationship with God. Because God's not a concept God's not an idea. God is not a doctrine. God is a person. And he wants relationship with us. Um, one of my, my biggest complaints about the term theology is that at the end of the day, most theology is really nothing more than philosophy with a God element tacked into it. It's, it's, it's a lot of a human rationalization, human reasoning, devoid of the relationship aspect. So beware when somebody tells you with absolute certainty there's something in Scripture that, that, that is definitely, there's no other wiggle room for it. Make sure the Scripture is really clear on it. And if it's not, I'd be beware of, uh, of that person's like adamance about it. So just word to the wise. This is my, you know, it's my advice as a teacher here. If a teacher's unteachable, beware. So anyway, he says not many should be uh, teachers. But what James does, I mean, and that's all he does with teachers. He, he leaves out at like one verse and then moves on to this whole tongue thing. So why, does, why, why, why the teacher thing? Well, one, it's a warning. Like, don't, don't be given to a lot of teachers. That's the problem, like, with YouTube. Like, you can, you can go hear whatever preacher you want and get any doctrine that you want a la carte. And so you get this pick-and-choose theology that you just kind of amalgamate together as you see fit. Well, there's no, there's no control mechanism and something like that, to kind of guide whether or not that's valid, other than like, I like it, and then there's that. But what James does is he takes this um, concept of, of a teacher, and he uses that as a springboard to talk about the importance of the tongue. And so he springboards into the importance of the tongue, because the teacher, their main way of communicating has been orally, through the tongue, right? So he springboards into the power of the tongue, and he goes on to say that if somebody doesn't stumble in what they say, they're pretty much a perfect person. Like, we've all had verbal gaps. I mean, unless you're mute, and then that's a whole other thing. But, you know, like, 
practically speaking, if you speak perfectly and speak justly all the time, you're pretty close to being perfect. And what's, what this is doing is it's tying back into Jesus' teaching in Luke 6.45, where Jesus says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. And then here's, here's that famous verse that we quote a lot, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So what James, is, he's taking that teaching, he says, if somebody teaches perfectly and speaks perfectly, like, they got, a, they got perfect good in their heart, which I'm still working on. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm still working on that. <clears throat> but then he goes on to say, like, if someone's able to never stumble, indicates it's really good. But he says that that hasn't happened. Other than Jesus, that hasn't really happened. <clears throat> and he says the tongue is small, but there's a great impact. And he, and he uses some references to that. And the, the horse's bit and the ship's rudder, right? You got a little bitty bit, control the whole horse. A little bitty rudder, control the whole boat. Is the tongue, the rudder, and the bit, they all move an entire entity in a desired direction. <clears throat> but he says an untamed tongue is inflamed. Most of the modern translations say inflamed by hell. Now, when you get into the Greek, I don't do this very often, but sometimes it's important. You get into the Greek, you got a couple of couple of words that translate into hell in English because hell is not a word in Hebrew and hell is not a word in Greek. It's an English word. It's a Germanic word. So it's either translating Hades, right, which is like the underworld of Greek mythology, or Sheol, the place of the dead in Hebrew belief, or um, Gehenna. Um, sometimes I think most of us are probably familiar with Gehenna. Um, it's from the Valley of Hinnom, um, and just outside of Jerusalem. And we'll get into that here in just a little bit. So you really have to kind of figure out, like, which one are they referencing to get a better understanding of what's being referenced there. When, when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against, you know, uh, the gospel and, you know, Peter being the rock, it's the gates of Hades. That's why if you look at some of the new translations, they don't say the gates of hell, they say the gates of death. And some people might not like that translation because they're used to the gates of hell. However, it's the gates of Hades. It's clearly in the Greek there. So you can take that and you can, you can kind of round out a better understanding of what Jesus is saying, that, that even death can't conquer the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot more element to it than just demonic warfare. There's a, a whole other element to it. Anyway, that's a side note. That's a freebie. So he's using the term Gehenna here. Now, if, if you look at... So it's saying the tongue is set on fire by Gehenna. So let's unpack that a little bit. What does that mean? <clears throat> well, here's a problem. A lot of commentaries, when they're looking at Gehenna, will reference Gehenna as being like this, um, kind of like an, this incendiary, it's a garbage dump, where they just take all the garbage and the dead bodies, and they just constantly burn it. So it's like this... this incendiary that burns up all the garbage. There's no archaeology that proves that whatsoever. Gehenna is from the Valley of Hinnom, and we have a clear reference in Scripture as to what this is and what this was. Um, uh, I didn't give Twyla these verses because I wrote them up post-fact, but Jeremiah 731 
refers to the, the Valley of Hinnom as the place for child sacrifices. The Valley of Hinnom was set up just outside of Jerusalem during the reign of wicked kings where they would sacrifice children by burning them alive to the god Moloch. That's Gehenna. That's what Jesus is referencing. That's what the Jews are thinking when he says Gehenna. They're not thinking a garbage heap. Like There's no garbage heap, right? It's child sacrifices. And Isaiah 66 uh, verse 24, here's, here's the verse that comes right out of Isaiah. And you'll know the last part of this because Jesus talks about this. He uses this phrase. We just don't seem to think that it is referencing Old Testament. We just seem to think that he's giving an exposition on hell. This is what it says. And they'll go out and look on the dead bodies of men who rebelled against God. For their worm won't die and their fire won't be quenched. Sound familiar? They will be an abhorrence to all flesh. So we're talking about a location that Jeremiah has stated, child sacrifices are burned alive here. And we're talking about in Isaiah that this will be an abhorrence to humanity. The burning of living children is an abhorrence to humanity. This place will be a cursed place that people will go and that destruction will constantly be on the mind of people who witness it. It will be an abhorrence to all flesh. So when we think Gehenna, let's not think of a trash heap. And let's not even like worry too much right now about tying into how that is going to relate to what hell is like. Let's think about the here and now where if something is set on fire by Gehenna, like James is saying, let's unpack that as this place where child sacrifices happened. So what would the fire of Gehenna reference then? Like what, what is the purpose of Gehenna, right? This, this doing something that, that is completely against God's laws, right? So first up, Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, will have the association of human rebellion against God. What did they do? Yahweh says, no other gods before me, right? Deuteronomy 6. I believe it's 6. The, the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. No other gods before me. It's the first commandment, right? What do they do? They go set up a statue to Moloch, which is a Canaanite god, and they sacrifice their babies to Moloch. Absolute rebellion against the ways of God. It's a rejection of God's law. It's a rejection of God's ways. It's a rejection of even identifying as God's people. So, in one sense, if the tongue is set on fire by Gehenna, the tongue is set on fire by rebellion against God, by a rejection of God's ways. We haven't even gotten into the supernatural element. Just on, on the human natural here, our tongues... When we don't tame it, when we don't speak the life of God in it, we're speaking a rebellion against God. We're speaking a rejection of God's goodness and God's ways. That's just on the fleshly level, right? So let's try to unpack it a little bit more. Second, demonic idolatry, right? We know that at some point, 
the devil that we call Satan decided that he didn't like humanity and that he tempted Eve to eat the apple and then Adam ate the apple or the fruit. It's not really an apple, it's a fruit. Some people think it's a pomegranate, whatever. <laughs> There's a demonic element at play that tries to trick the human mind into doing things contrary to God. So not only is the Valley of Gehenna set on fire by human propensity for rebellion, it's also set on fire by these supernatural beings, whatever you want to call them, demons, uh, Benai Elohim, I've heard that, the divine counsel, the, the, all, all of those who are going against God for whatever reason, has set their sights on humanity and is trying to destroy humanity. And they're trying to influence our tongue. They're trying to influence our hearts. And then on that, kind of related to these, is this idea of self-worship. Right? So I don't need God. There is no God. Whatever. Atheists are just rejecting. Even if you reject uh, the demonic, you know what? I can stand in the middle of the road and say that semi-truck's not there. But it's probably still going to hit me. Just saying Self-worship, that I am the pinnacle. You know, we have come to the pinnacle. We are the greatest in all the world. Like, we were self-made. So all of this is jumbled up. It affects our tongue. Right? Set on fire by Gehenna. And Gehenna means rejection of God. Gehenna means destruction of all that is good and great. Gehenna means going against even our own human instincts, right? We're sacrificing babies, right? Going against our own human instincts for something that we perceive to be greater and more powerful. Usually the self. Some people, you know, it's an homage to Satan or demonic beings. So the untamed tongue is inflamed by hell. So puts a little bit more gravitas, if you will, on whatever we speak flippantly, right? I remember... Don't ever do this. Um, I did it at one point, just back in the day, and I thought that I was like, like the defender of the doctrines, right? Getting into a flame war on the internet. Worst idea ever. <laughs> but one of the things that like roared out of me, right, is righteous indignation, is that Jesus says that we will give an account for every idle word we speak. Because of this, right? Because what is our tongue set on fire by? Is it set on fire by the Holy Spirit or is it set on fire by Gehenna? Like even in our frustrations, how, do, how can we, like we can, it's okay to be angry, you know? It's okay to be frustrated. It's not okay to speak things against God's ways in our anger and our frustration. So that's where James is saying, we got to tame that tongue. And more so for the teachers, right? Because if we say something flippant, Somebody might take that as us being serious, and then, lo and behold, uh, a heresy crops up. So, yeah, that's the whole background on Gehenna. Oh, that was fun. And we can see the destruction that, that the tongue, right, or the, the words of influencers can have. Just, I'll just use some very vague words. Like, what are the, what, what's the... What's the devastation that's happened because of refusals to get vaccinated? Like, in 2015, would that mean anything to us? Like, I'm not going to get vaccinated. How many lives have been destroyed for just saying, 
No thank you, right? How many businesses have gone under because of the last few, two or three years? People working hard, right, to make a way in life, and it just gets destroyed because something the government said we needed to lock down on, right? How much destruction, how much devastation has happened in people's livelihoods over those two things? I mean, and those are just two things. Uh, I won't go into any more detail. There's been a lot of uh, developmental issues in schools for children because they, they, they learn and they grow with facial interactions. For two years, they had no facial interactions for 40 hours a week, right? Because everything's covered up. And now all the kids are two years behind their learning curve of where all of their predecessors have been. Now we're having to make up for lost time because the tongue, right? Because of the tongue of an influencer. And I wonder where that got set on fire by. Just wondering. So James goes on to say that the tongue is a, a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. It sets on fire the entire course of life. And what the fruit, you know the fruit, right? You know the fruit. If it's death and destruction, it's most likely not God, right? Because God is what? The author of power, love, and a sound mind. And what's the mission of the enemy? To steal, to kill, and destroy. So anything that, that smacks of destruction, anything that smacks of death, anything that smacks of undue loss, pretty good chance that that's the work of the devil. And the tongue is a big influencer in all of this. If we go all the way back to Genesis, we see that the fall was precipitated by just a few words coming out of a crafty serpent. Surely you won't die. Right? In fact, not only will you not die, you will become what? Gods. You'll become like God. You'll know good from evil, right from wrong. <sighs> Boy, that was a lie. <laughs> because you know what? That serpent was saying, you have an intimate knowledge of what's good, but you don't have an intimate knowledge of what's evil because you haven't experienced evil. Personally. You haven't partaken of evil. And the lie, it's presumed, includes this. God has never partaken of evil. So in a sense, by eating that fruit, we become less like God. Because now we have an intimate knowledge of evil that God doesn't have because God's perfect and he can't have that intimate knowledge of evil. Just, you know, thoughts to ponder. With our tongue, we bless and we curse. And he says, this shouldn't be. We shouldn't be blessing and cursing. It should be one, right? And not only just, just cursing, right, in four-letter words, it's cursing other people. And then he adds this on, who are made in God's image. So anytime that we go against humanity, right, when we go against uh, the respect and the dignity that somebody is made in God's image, we're stepping out of line with the gospel. 
Now, I can disagree with people. I can disagree with people's ideologies. I can, I can prefer not to be in the company of people who negatively affect me. I am not in a place to curse them or to bring, speak down a destruction on them because they bear God's image, whether they're redeemed or not. That's not my place. They don't bear my image. They bear God's image. So it's God's, image, God's place to bring a judgment to level any condemnation on them. That's his job. That's not my job. <clears throat> but here we do it in the flesh. We do it, right? And James is saying we shouldn't be doing that. And so then he hearkens back to Matthew 7, 16 through 20 about false prophets. So you'll see the, the, the similarity in the verbiage from Matthew 7 to what James has said. By your fruit you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So James had a pretty good knowledge of Jesus' teaching. Twice in one chapter, you have very similar verbiage overlapping. So this wasn't somebody who wrote it like, you know, a hundred years down the road. He knew. <clears throat> so then he takes this whole tongue aspect, right? And he goes a little bit deeper. Because, you know, out of the words of the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the words come, right? So he takes that a little bit deeper. It's like, well, what's influencing the heart? That's where he gets into the wisdom. So this is going to be verses 13 through 18 we're going to talk about. He talks about describing wisdom that is from above, right? It's wisdom that comes from God. Um, in, in James 1, he talks about um, every good and great gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, right? So wisdom from God. Here's the breakdown characteristic of wisdom that comes from God. Using good conduct, we share our works in the meekness of wisdom. It's pure. It's peaceable. Gentle. It's open to reason. You ever try to talk to an irrational person? I do every day. I've got a three-year-old. You just can't reason with them, right? And there are 33-year-olds that are just as irrational. Amen. <laughs> and that means that they're not operating on wisdom from above. It's full of mercy and good fruit. Their life has good fruit. It's impartial. It doesn't show like a preferential treatment in something, like playing politics in an office setting, right? Wisdom from above is sincere. It's not malicious. It's not uh, critical. It's sincere. And it results in a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by peacemakers. That's wisdom from God. That's wisdom from above. That's what we strive for. We hearken back to James chapter 1. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask God and he will give it abundantly. This is the kind of wisdom he gives. But then he says, there's another kind of wisdom. Actually, I, I'm going to break it down into three kinds of wisdom. But he describes another wisdom that results in harboring bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts. So there is a whole wisdom system that can be built on bitter jealousy. 
And there's a whole wisdom system that can be built on selfish ambition. Like, yeah, selfish ambition. I can set up a whole way of reasoning for I can get what I want in selfish ambition. And there's a whole way of reasoning that I can fulfill or satisfy my bitter jealousy. Um, little side note, I'm, I'm going through some audio books right now. I like science fiction, and I just needed something to get my mind off of work. So I'm going through the Dune series. I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Frank Herbert's Dune. Um, big books. Uh, he wrote like seven. And I've gotten through those. His son has taken over and written like 20. So I'm doing all these backstory things. And um, there's, two, uh, there's two noble families in the galaxy that are, have a blood feud with each other. And I'm just now getting into the backstory of where that blood feud came from. And that one person on one side is so tainted by their hatred that they can't even see rational truth when it's presented. And it's, uh, to me, it's a perfect example of this kind of wisdom that comes out. So everything this person does serves the end of wiping out the other family's bloodline. Like everything, every, every influence they make, every political movement they make is driven by trying to wipe out this other person's bloodline. <clears throat> so this is another kind of wisdom that's contrary to God's wisdom. Now, the way, he, the way James breaks it down, is the way I'm going to break this down, is that it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. So this is how I'm going to break it down. I'm going to say that those are three competing sources of wisdom that, come from, that, that oppose God's wisdom. So there is um, earthly wisdom, there is unspiritual wisdom, and there is demonic wisdom. So we're going to look at those just a little bit. Earthly wisdom is generally driven by getting our best life on earth. Like, like I, can, I can put together a whole wisdom system where I can get ahead on earth, right? I don't know what, what decade in the 1900s this phrase came up, but he who dies with the most toys wins. I don't know if you guys remember that. I remember like the Christian answer on t-shirts in the 90s that said, he who dies with the most toys still dies. <laughs> but uh, but that, that's an earthly wisdom. Like how to move and, and, and manipulate things to get ahead in the earthly world. Second is unspiritual wisdom. And this is usually concocted by the human mind or the human imagination. So it's not just about getting ahead, but maybe you, you think of um, like Buddhist philosophy or Taoist philosophy in the East. It's not Christian, right? But it's, it's about setting up a human uh, philosophical system to live by. It could have good stuff. It could have some moral bearings on it. So it could look, in terms of like the way you live your life every day, it could look very much like Christianity. However, it's, it's this worldly, right? It's unspiritual. It's human-made. And then there's the demonic wisdom. And this comes from those spiritual beings that oppose Jesus. <clears throat> and their goal is to maximize the reduction. I know that's... Maximize the reduction, right, of the people in the kingdom of heaven. They're trying to depopulate heaven. Their drive is to depopulate humanity, depopulate heaven, and to minimize the effect of people partnering with God in the redemptive plan. Okay. Yes. 
their goal, and, and I'll break it down too, right? Their goal is to maximize the reduction. So their, their goal is to depopulate the kingdom of heaven and to minimize the effect of people partnering with God in the redemptive plan. All right, so I'm going to paint a picture for you guys. <clears throat> uh, if you think in the spiritual world, um, and this is, this is kind of contrary to, this is not doctrine, I'm just painting a possible picture, right? Um, when God says, let us create the world, let us make man in our own image, we tend to think that he's, he's talking amongst himself as the Trinity. What if he's already got spiritual children, right? Spiritual beings that he's created, angels, right? And then he decides to create humanity, physical children on earth. Some of the spiritual children get jealous of that. Why are you doing this? We're your children. There's a rebellion, right? So we get Satan, angels, demons, stuff like that. One of the things that they want to do is... In one sense, they're like, well, I want to do like, I want to do that. So they try to create their own children. That's where you get the, the whole Nephilim in Genesis, right? I'm just painting a picture. This is not doctrine. This is not solid fact. I'm just painting a picture to kind of give us an idea where this uh, demonic wisdom comes from. So you, you get these unnatural creations, right? These Nephilim and all that. The sons of God, daughters of men, all that. <clears throat> then you get to this point where God says, in, I think it's Psalm 82, we meets together with the divine council, um, and he says, you guys have been terrible in ruling over this world. Um, and because you've been so, like, against what I'm doing, you're now going to suffer punishment like humanity. Right? You're going to die like men. So he's telling these angelic beings, your, time, your days are numbered. You've ruled horribly. You've rebelled against me. A judgment is coming. That's Psalm 82. <clears throat> so now, what they know is that when God puts together his plan for redemption for mankind, the promise is that humanity will then overtake them in terms of ruling the earth. So their goal is to hinder the spread of the gospel. Because when the gospel hits its completion, their judgment is nigh. So they have a very vested interest to prolong, to stop the spread of the gospel with everything they have. Because their judgment is set, it's just a matter of time. And they're just buying time. And so James is coming in and saying, demonic wisdom is designed to let the demons buy more time. And they buy more time by not letting the gospel come to fruition. How do they do that? They steal, they kill, they destroy. Right? They steal the flock out of the church if they can by deception, by false teachers. They kill. Well, we got Planned Parenthood in every county. They kill. Maybe God has a plan for this one baby to grow up to be a great evangelist for China. Just saying. What if we abort them? Got to start all over. Got to raise another one up, right? It might buy me another 15 years, right? And then they destroy. Anything God builds, they destroy it. Look at, look at the des destruction of, of churches that have risen up. Look at the destruction that just happened in Israel recently. 
Look at, look at the rise of church shootings, right? Like anything, anything to buy a little bit more time. We're going to influence the thinking people on this earth with a demonic wisdom to buy us a few more years. So where does our wisdom lie? Does our wisdom lie from above, characterized by good conduct, showing works with meekness of wisdom, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere, resulting in a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by peacemakers? Or are we looking at a wisdom that is, can I get the most ahead in this life? Can I get the most toys? Or another wisdom, can I have a decent quality life to live by while I'm walking on this earth? And that's really about it. Or is my wisdom driven by trying to minimize the effect of the gospel? One of the things that, uh, and there's some overlap in a lot of these. They're kind of interrelated. I didn't realize this until somebody stated it. That I try to stay out of politics, and, I, and I'm not going to get very political here. Um, but there is, there's this, uh, there's a vegan movement, and there's a climate change movement. That's all I'm going to say. And what it look, if you look at, at, at the trajectory of how this ends. It looks like the founding philosophy of some of the movement is that humanity is a parasite on Earth. There was, there's actually one major influencer in the, uh, in the vegan community that has basically said um, the world would be much better off if there were zero humans on it. What? <laughs> what? Where, where does that come from? So, so there, there's a legit belief system that humans are parasites and we need to reduce the amount of humanity on the earth. Does that sound anything like the be fruitful and multiply that we see in scripture? It sounds like the opposite, right? If, if that's the underlying wisdom, philosophy, that a group of people are adopting, then what's the fruit of that, right? How does that influence when they get into... Um, positions of power, how does it influence government positions? How does it influence the food industry? How does it influence uh, the, the, the industrial industry? How does it influence the spread of information, right? Okay, so I'm going to stop there because, like I said, I don't want to go on a, don't, don't get on a soapbox about it. Where does the wisdom come from? That's the end of this message is where does this wisdom come from? Does our wisdom come from above, or does it come from ourselves and spiritual beings that are opposed to God's mission? That's, that's the question. Where is our wisdom coming from? And if we don't know, as individuals, then we better ask the Lord, Lord, give me your wisdom. And that's what James encourages us to do in chapter 1. So the wisdom we pursue, one of these four, will affect the way we use our tongue. It comes back to the first part of the chapter. And it will affect the contents in our hearts. So in conclusion, in James chapter 3, we're given two main points. The power of the tongue and what drives that tongue as, as, as the underlying wisdom. We examine the nature of wisdom 
and we pursue and embody what God has called us to. So a good heart yields good fruit, just like Jesus has taught, which is determined, we can determine that by the words of our mouths. And we have an insight into the nature of wisdom. we got wisdom from above, we got earthly wisdom, which is putting myself first above everything else so that I win with the most toys, unspiritual, say I live a decent life on this earth, or demonic wisdom, because humanity is a parasite, right? So we are called to pursue wisdom from above, since that's the nature of our lives in Jesus. And we're invited to ask for that. So in closing, if uh, anybody that's uh, listening here or tuning in on the podcast, maybe, maybe you've not heard things like this. Maybe you've had a distant like, association with a church and somehow you came across this podcast. And you're interested in more, and you're interested in this wisdom that comes from above, then just ask God. You can just use these words right after me. God, I've heard something interesting today about wisdom that comes from you. And that that wisdom can be had through Jesus. If that is true, show yourself to me. Show me your wisdom. Show me the life that you offer. And help me understand more. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's it. If you, if you prayed that, uh, find somebody that you know is a believer. Go ask them about it. If you don't, you can get a hold of us here at the church. Our email is info at dgpchicago.org. And uh, one of our leaders would be glad to reach out to you and answer any questions you have. So with that, I'm going to close this in prayer and uh, find, can, uh, do a final worship song. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. And I pray that you move mightily in our hearts, that we really do pursue wisdom from above, that we become more intimate with you, Father, and that we become more adamant about partnering with you in the kingdom of heaven. Lord, because we know that the stakes are high, that heaven and hell is in the balance for many people. Lord, and, and the voices that oppose you right now are louder than the, than the voices that are for you. And so, our Lord, I pray that you give us a strength and a boldness to increase our voices so that your word can go forth in this world, that your wisdom can reign supreme, and that we can maximize population in the kingdom of heaven. Hello again, this is Pastor Todd. I pray the Lord uses my message today to strengthen your walk with God. If you were blessed by this message and would like to support the ministry of The Gathering Place financially, I encourage you to use our online giving portal at tgpchicago.org. The portal uses PayPal's secure site so none of your information is compromised. Once again, thank you for tuning in to The Gathering Place podcast. God bless you and have a great week.